I raced into the office and started picking up the pile of pages that had spilled onto the floor. Thankfully, the fax had stopped humming. Pages and pages of reports, interviews, descriptions of evidence. But the first crime scene photo I came across was like a sudden jackhammer to my temple. I was afraid Carla would walk in any minute and see me on the floor surrounded by a series of grotesque images from her previous life. But I couldn't leave it for later. Suddenly, it was imperative that I see exactly what Carla, or Lucy, had seen when she walked into her ex-husband's house that day. It was indescribably horrific. The child's face was unrecognizable, a pulpy mass of red flesh that didn't come close to looking human. The amount of blood, the utter carnage. The crime scene was one that most seasoned police officers wouldn't be prepared to face. It looked like they'd been sitting at the kitchen table, playing a game of Scrabble, when the assailant entered. He probably did the adult first, then the kid. Which meant that for at least a minute or two, that kid saw what was coming his way. The ex-husband was splayed out on the black-and-white tile floor, one leg wrenched unnaturally at the knee, bent in the wrong direction. The kid hung off one of the chairs, his head beaten into the seat, almost melded into it, his skull barely holding its shape. Only the small nose could be made out in the mass of flesh that was left. The scene was so over-the-top It looked like something out of a movie. Everything placed for maximum effect to elicit horror. Blood and brain matter on the lettered tiles. The walls in angry red, Jackson Pollock. One of the boy's sneakers resting idly across the room bearing a single drop of blood. I had to force myself out of it, gather the pages together, and shove them in an old briefcase I kept at the office. I couldn't leave them there and risk her finding them, so when Carla pulled up outside and honked the horn, I locked up the office, motioned for her to pop the trunk, and put the briefcase inside. I got into the car and looked at her. She was a totally different person. What's wrong? Nothing. I was afraid she could see through me through my eyes, right to the images that were still floating around in my head. You look pale. Did you eat anything today? All that blood. The kid's face caved into the chair. I don't want anything. You get driving directions? Yeah, to Kalamazoo, but I don't exactly know where the cleanup site is. I had to think about that a minute. Take a couple of deep breaths. Try to focus on what we were supposed to be doing. You have the reporter's phone number in that notebook of yours? Oh, so now my handy little notebook is useful, huh? Carla dug in her purse with one hand while she steered the car with the other. Watch the road, woman. I'll get it. I reached into her purse and fumbled around until I felt the spiral 
then pulled out the notebook. I flipped the pages until I found the number, then pulled out my cell phone and dialed. Detroit Free Press. Greeted a male voice. I looked at the notebook, searching for the name. Carla pointed to it. Can I speak to Dell Simons? This is Dell. Dell, Detective Dex Morneau. You spoke with my assistant, Carla, about the Crystal Bell case. Yep. You guys take care of that John kid? He's taking a little vacation, hopefully. I'm wondering why you thought we should check on him. Crystal told me he gave her the initial information about the cleanup site. I figured he knew more than she did since he worked there. So, if she ended up dead, he might want to keep an eye out for trouble. Yeah, reasonable assumption. What was your contact with her? I only talked with her twice. She called and told me the basics. Gave me Deckard's name and asked if I would check on it. She called me back about a week and a half ago. Told me she was going down to get some pictures and she'd get them to me. I got the impression she didn't like most of the people she worked with. But the illegal immigrant thing bothered her. Mainly because she felt they were being exploited. She never got back to me. I did some digging. Asked the managing editor if I could go down and see if there was a story. He told me to sit tight. And then, a couple hours later, I was told there wasn't a story. Really? But the revelation wasn't a surprise. Sounded like par for the course. My boss didn't want to be the one to open up that can of worms. I was hoping it would get opened by someone else. Then we'd have to cover it. So you figure your boss has friends who might be friendly with someone connected somewhere down the line? They usually are. Seems to be a whole lot of concern about stepping on toes these days. Dell sounded as jaded as every journalist gets right around the time he finds out his job isn't always about getting out the news. Tell me what you know about the cleanup site. Last month, a 30-inch oil pipeline burst in Talmadge Creek in Marshall Township, near a tributary of the Kalamazoo River. The official word from Bainbridge Energy, the Canadian company that owns the pipe, is that about a million gallons of oil leaked into the water. Bainbridge hired a local company, Farner Environmental Services, to help with the cleanup. Farner then hired Deckard's cleaning company to supply the workers. Deckard immediately passed the buck to handle the day-to-day -day work crew. It appears Stanley bust in about 50 undocumented workers from somewhere. I took a trip down there two days ago. From what I saw, those guys are working in some really unsafe conditions. Doesn't sound like you're sitting tight. I've got some emails out to the Canadian Energy Company that's responsible for the pipeline rupture. I don't expect to get a response, but I'm working on it. Behind the scenes. I figure if that can of worms pops open, I'll be ready to jump in. Whereabouts is the site located? Take I-69. Go east at the Marshall exit. And it's about two miles south. You can't miss it. They've got a bunch of trucks running booms down there, trying to keep the oil out of the river. They might as well be trying to sop that stuff up with Kotex. It'll never happen. Hope you're wearing boots. Great. I look down at my loafers, sand socks. If we find out anything we think you should know, we'll call you. Dell thanked me and hung up. I flipped the phone closed. So here's the deal, Carla. Right now, the powers that be aren't interested. 
in what's going on down at that site. What? I don't get it. Carla was appalled in that way people with the luxury of naivete generally are. Why isn't it all over the news? Oil spill, environmental shit, undocumented workers. Because it's not an election year. Well, that's some bullshit on a stick. It is what it is, darling. I reached between us and grabbed the new bottle of scotch from the back seat, twisted off the cap and took a swig. I couldn't get the crime scene photos out of my head. Couldn't muster the energy to give a shit about the bell case, because I was sitting next to a woman who saw the inside of her kid's brain, and there's not a person alive who deserves to see that shit. How she was still walking around breathing, able to string nouns and prepositions and verbs together to form complete sentences, was beyond my ability to comprehend. So, what's the plan, Morneau? What are we gonna do when we get there? Carla Warley watched me drink straight from the bottle. We're gonna talk to Stanley Wayne Grove. Find out if it looks like he's got enough invested in this thing with Deckard that he might kill to protect it. Then we're gonna head back home. Hopefully, before happy hour starts. I'd like to do something. At least get a look at the place that ended up getting Crystal Bell killed. We don't know that, yet. I took another swig. Yeah, we do. And how can you be so calm about this? Doesn't it piss you off? Finding out that the paper won't cover it? Carla, at some point you realize the world is full of injustices, perpetrated on innocent people every day. And you finally figure out that you'll never make a difference. Because for every injustice you try to mitigate, there's an asshole somewhere behind the scenes, unmitigating. Once you realize there's a world of crap out there needs fixing, but none of it'll ever get fixed, you lose the will to give a damn. Doesn't happen overnight. Happens little by little. Until one day you realize you don't care anymore. Apathy is a relief. I took another deep swig. I was still a good half bottle away from being anywhere near blurring those images in my head. Carla rolled her window down and propped her elbow on the frame. She rested her head in her hand and asked, What happened to you, Morneau? I slowly turned to look at her. Meaning? I read your books. At some point along the line, you believed in something. Otherwise, you couldn't have written a character like that. So self-assured and totally in the world around him. An actual part of it instead of sitting on the sidelines, watching it slide by through a self-induced fisheye lens. When exactly was it that you waved goodbye to your confidence? What the hell are you on about, woman? I have plenty of self-confidence. Morno, I have taken shits that have more self-confidence than you. You don't have self-confidence. You've got bluster. And there's a difference. Bluster blows in loud gusts that knock over everything in its wake, so nothing gets too close. You're blustering your way through life, just hoping that everyone around you doesn't figure it out. That you've already given up. I didn't know how to answer that. I let a few miles of silence slide by before I turned to her and said, Quid pro quo, Lucy. That got her attention. Carla's reaction was so visceral, 
I immediately regretted my clumsy attempt to let her know I'd found out about her past. She wasn't going to answer me, that was clear. As dozens of miles sped by without either of us saying anything, her face ran the gamut of emotions from confusion to sadness, anger to disbelief, and then pain. It lingered there far longer than I was prepared for. Finally, I turned to stare out the window. It was the best I could do to give her the little bit of privacy our confined quarters would allow. An uncomfortable hour later, we were in Kalamazoo, with not a word exchanged in the interim. Her face had settled into an unnerving blank stare that wound me up more than any of her previous expressions. Pull in there. We'll fill up and get a map. Carla slid the sedan into the gas station and pulled up to a pump, shutting the car off. I got out and filled the tank, watching her unchanging expression in the driver's side mirror. She had shut down, and I wasn't sure she'd ever open back up. I decided not to bring it up again. Whoever she was now, it had to have taken an extraordinary amount of strength to get there. I went inside, grabbed a bottle of water and waited in line. As the guy in front of me spent an inordinate amount of time picking out scratch-off lotto tickets, I noticed a cardboard display of those necklaces made out of elastic with beads of candy strung on it. I don't know what possessed me, but I snatched one off the rack and paid for everything. I slid back into the car and unceremoniously dumped the water and candy necklace into Carla's lap. She was so out of it, she startled and looked at me wide-eyed before noticing what was in her lap. She stared at it for a long time, then unscrewed the top of the water bottle and took a long swig. When she'd had her fill, she set it in the cup holder, screwed the cap back on, and opened the candy necklace. She stretched it between her hands and over her head, pulling her hair from underneath it. As she steered out of the parking lot, she tucked a finger under the necklace and popped it into her mouth, biting off a piece of candy. She never said anything about it. Once we got off the highway, the site was easy to find, given the battalion of work trucks parked to the side of a marshy, overgrown area we'd have to traverse in order to get to the actual work site. We parked behind a couple of old school buses that had been painted a drab gray, the original yellow still streaking through in spots. I was just about to get out of the car when my cell phone rang. Yeah. You down there yet? It was Dell, and he sounded out of breath. Just pulled up. I've got a cameraman behind me, and we're running across the parking lot now, headed for the van. The shit's about to hit the fan, detective. The can has officially been opened. What happened? I asked. Carla looked at me questioningly as she pulled her hair up into a ponytail. I put a finger up to tell her to wait, then plugged my free ear so I could hear Dell. The connection was horrible. I got an anonymous call from Canada about an hour ago. I'm guessing a whistleblower from the company. Turns out they got an automated signal warning that the breach occurred. But either someone dropped the ball or they thought it was a mistake. Hang on a minute. I heard Dell bark out a hurry up to the cameraman, and the car door slammed. Damn, it's hot. Anyway, for about 17 hours, they continued pumping crude through that broken pipe, 
At that point, they finally notified local firefighters in Marshall, but they weren't able to find anything. I called officials in Marshall, but couldn't get anywhere, and they didn't seem all that excited about talking about it. But here's the thing. The guy I spoke to, he said Bainbridge ordered Ferner Environmental to fire Deckard's crew a week ago. Right around the time he stroked out. I rubbed my head, wishing I hadn't started drinking so early. I was slowly sidling up to that place where I'd need more to drink if I hoped to ward off the headache that was settling in. Bingo. But they're still working because the word hasn't gotten down to the crew yet. And the Farner people don't seem to be in any hurry to traipse in there and shut things down. Probably want to stay as far away as possible. But you can be sure, whatever money's moving, or was moving, from Bainbridge to Farner to Deckard, has stopped. Those guys down there won't know what hit them till they find out they're not getting paid. I watched Carla get out of the sedan and lean against the bumper staring off into the distance and chewing on her necklace. Dell continued. The local police are headed out there now to deliver a cease and desist order. And here's the kicker. Bainbridge's official stance is that if there are any undocumented workers connected with the spill cleanup, it's not their problem. Quote, This is an issue between law enforcement, Deckard, and Farner. There is no direct connection between Bainbridge and Farner. Our contractor agreements contain very strict provisions about following all applicable state and federal laws. Unquote. So I guess you've officially got yourself a story, I said, getting out of the car. Yep. I'll be up there in about 90 minutes. Will you still be there? I hope not. I hung up and got Carla up to speed. So these guys don't even know what's coming? Nope. I motioned for her to follow me, and we headed through the heavy brush in the direction of noise. What'll happen to him? I stepped through a dense thicket and held a large branch so she could get through. They'll probably take them in. In? Where's in? Into custody. Ship them to wherever they hold illegals before they send them home. Carla's eyes widened further. That's not right. They're out here busting their asses cleaning up this mess, and now they're not only not going to get paid, they're going to get shipped to God knows where? There were a lot of ways I could answer that. A lot of sides to that particular story. But we were just coming up on the work site, and I stopped to take in the scene. The marshy swampland was covered in an oily layer of mud and trampled grass. There looked to be close to a hundred oil-covered workers milling around, wearing yellow suits and hard hats. The place stank of oil fumes. The creek that wound through a landscape of green grass and trees was covered with a thick sheen that shimmered unnaturally in the midday sun, like liquid tar. Long links of yellow and white tubes attached to industrial vacuums snaked their way along both sides of the shoreline and into the muck ineffectively attempting to fix what any observer with half their synapses firing would understand was an unfixable situation. A worker, waist deep in the creek, slogged against the current to relocate the boom that fed the vacuum tubes into the water. Carla stared at the cluster of activity around the ruined marsh area, her words coming out in a despairing air of disbelief. 
Holy shit. There wasn't anything more to say. It was clear that Kalamazoo River would never be the same. Nobody was paying any attention to us, so when a worker walked past me, headed to a tented area, I turned and asked, You know where I can find Stanley Wayngrove? The Hispanic man made a sour face. No sé. En el hotel o en el bar Boracto. Do you speak English? Carla interrupted me. In qué hotel? Quality Inn, the man said with a thick accent, motioning wanly in the direction of the highway. Carla said something back to him. He stifled a derisive snort. Qué para? The buckboard. El lado del hotel. Carla nodded. Gracias. The man walked off, removing his hard hat and swiping an arm across his brow, leaving an oil smudge across his forehead. You speak Spanish? I asked. Carla stared at a congregation of men standing around what looked like a makeshift break area. Yeah, my husband was... She stopped and looked at me for a second before shaking her head. Just stay here. I'll be right back. When she headed over to the group of men, her determined stride anchored by clenched fists at her sides... I knew exactly what she meant to do, and the pounding in my head ratcheted up a few notches. I watched her calmly pull one man aside and begin speaking to him, his placid face quickly becoming alarmed. His eyes widened, and his head jerked around the worksite, left and right. Carla put a hand on his arm, presumably to calm him. Then she began giving what I can only assume were a series of directions. Because as soon as she stopped talking and started walking toward me, the man took off into the center of the tent and began yelling loudly to his co-workers in Spanish. Dozens of heads turned to stare as the group inside the tent began to quickly disperse, each man grabbing another man and forwarding the information throughout the worksite. In less than a minute, the entire crew was scurrying around, animated. Half of them already heading toward the brushy area between the marshland and the road. Carla strode toward me with a concerned look on her face, stopping to watch a group of workers as they yelled at one another. The entire site was on the move, aside from the handful of oil-stained Caucasian workers who looked around, wondering what was going on. Hey, Joan of Arc, you done? I grumbled. I'd like to find somewhere to wash my feet and grab a beer. Carla scowled. Yeah, by all means, let's get some more alcohol in you. I guess I'm going to do the Wayne Grove interview. I watched in amusement as the gaggle of yellow-clad men slid around the mucky terrain toward the tree-lined area like they were exiting a burning building. I thought you said you wanted to solve this thing. Figure I might as well let you earn your keep. I looked down at my shoes. They'd sunk about an inch into the ground and were covered in oily mud. Carla glared at me, her jaw working, eyes seething. Every day that I spend more than an hour with you, I've earned my fucking keep. 